Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. You sound far away just there. I know. I know. (laughs) It all feels so far away. It, It does. It really does. Today, though, we have a a very up-close and personal conversation with the author Yaa Jesse about her new novel, Transcendent Kingdom. Yeah, I mean, this novel deals with, in a kind of very intimate story about a young woman who's a neuroscience PhD student studying addiction as she kind of tries to wrangle with both her, her mother's depression in the wake of her brother's death from a drug overdose Uh, kind of tackles those big themes of death and trauma, addiction, recovery, like trying to find hope and how we ground ourselves in the present amidst all of those things. I guess I'm starved for scientific study or or reading because Mm. I really enjoyed this book a lot. But um, what I probably found most interesting were the science experiments, these uh, lab experiments that that Yaa details really well and that are actually based off a cl- the research of a close friend of hers and which I was just fascinated with and I realized yeah I'm not really keeping up with my scientific american subscription or or anything because it's it's just amazing what people are finding out about the brain and, and the way they're finding it out I thought that was really compelling well, and how it's like, right, we don't really know why some people get addicted or, or follow, um, fall into kind of addictive patterns while others don't. I think that's the study that you were talking about, right? That it's like, they're just still, there's still so much of a mystery around addiction, right? Yeah. Even though it's a big cultural narrative. Completely. And just around the, the brain in general and how it works and what it does. You would, you would think at this point we might know so much more, but um, it's still very mysterious. All right, should we get to it? Sure. We're thrilled to have Yaa Jesse on the line with us today. Yaa's the author previously of Homegoing, a stellar debut novel that won a number of awards, including the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Award, the Penn Hemingway Award for Best First Book, and the American Book Award for Contribution to Diversity in American Literature. She joins us today to talk about her second novel, Transcendent Kingdom, which centers on the story of Gifty, a Ghanaian-American neuroscience PhD student whose research on addiction is part of a long struggle to understand both her brother Nana's death from an overdose and her mother's subsequent fall into a years-long depression. Caught between trauma and the desire to overcome it, between the comforts offered by her evangelical religious faith and her scholarly absorption in scientific reason, Transcendent Kingdom is a novel about how we make meaning, if indeed we can make meaning, out of tragedy. Welcome to the show, Ya. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here, Ya. I wondered if you could start by just telling us a little about Gifty who I found to be just so charming. And I think part of the reason is because we learned so much of her past and we go really in depth with her and we kind of toggle between her past and her present so much in the novel that I really did feel that I was getting to know a person. So maybe just tell us how you imagined her, how she came to you and what you imagined her being like as a person. Sure. Well, I'm glad she felt like a person to you, felt real to you. That's important to me. 
when I started writing the book, I was really just thinking about her profession at first. I wanted to write a book about a woman who was researching addiction and depression as a neuroscientist while facing those issues in her real life in some fashion. Um, And in Gifty's case, her older brother passed away from an opioid overdose when she was a young child. And subsequently, her mother became depressed. And so she is using her research, I think, as a way of dealing with and thinking through the pain of her childhood, a way of kind of trying to make sense out of these senseless things that have happened to her. And in so doing, she's also reflecting on the ways in which she used to make meaning, namely the fact that she used to be quite religious. So I was thinking about her as a character who exists on these two seemingly opposite poles, a woman who cares deeply about science, but whose childhood was very much informed by religion. And I was questioning what the soul of someone for whom those things are true would look like. And through doing that, I think what emerged was this character who is really deeply reticent, but also fierce and intellectual and questioning, and for me, also very real. Yeah, it's interesting because maybe that's one of the reasons I related to her so much. She's pursuing many different threads, you know, that she hasn't renounced her religion completely. And she's also obviously brilliant and scientific, and she's also dealing kind of with what growing up religious has done to her just socially So I do think that, you know, she comes off as so well-rounded. I'm really interested why specifically you wanted her to be a neuroscientist. The reason I wanted her to be a neuroscientist doesn't have like a fun story behind it, really, other than the fact (laughs) (laughs) that my best friend from Alabama is a neuroscientist. And I found her work both fascinating, but also kind of hard to penetrate at first. And it was strange for me around the time that Homegoing was coming out, she was also finishing up her thesis and she had a major paper coming out and I wanted to read it, sat down to do so and realized that I couldn't understand a word of it. I thought that was really strange to have this person in my life whom I love so much and whom I'm so close to, but not be able to kind of access this very real part of her that she spends all of her time thinking about. And so I just asked if I could go shadow her in her lab, not thinking that I was going to write about it at first. But once I did, I became kind of obsessed with the work that she was doing. And this book came out from there. I guess the way that I want to get into this is like, what did you find so gripping about, say, themes like addiction and depression and how we make meaning out of those things in the novel? I think from the perspective of the science, one thing that I always found really fascinating about the way my friend explained it to me just as a lay person was that both of those things, addiction and depression, exist on this continuum of thinking about reward seeking and risk. So addiction being a disease in which a person cannot stop seeking reward even when they know there is great risk involved, and depression being a disease wherein a person cannot 
seek reward even when there's great pleasure involved. And so I had never thought about those two things being related at all. And I'm sure there's a scientist out there who's going to quibble with the definition (laughs) I just gave, which I totally respect. But I really liked the idea of these two things existing on a continuum, on a spectrum. And so I wanted to write about a woman who had seen the fullness of that spectrum and was trying to address it in its fullness. When you talk about it in that way, these kind of things that we think of as binary opposites. So in the way that you laid out what depression is in terms of inability to kind of see pleasure, and then addiction is the kind of like the seeking after pleasure in the face of grave risk. It seems also is this kind of like binary distinction between religious faith and scientific reason that kind of divides Mm -hmm. both Gifty's family and her academic colleagues, right? And what she seems to do is to see those things as not necessarily incompatible. So Mm -hmm. can you talk about how she, I don't want to say that it's splitting the difference because it's not as simple as that, but can you talk about how she navigates that in-between space? Sure. Well, I was trying to create this character who would attempt to reject binaries at every turn, particularly the one that you just mentioned, the idea Mm -hmm. that religion and science are somehow diametrically opposed. Gifty is a character who was raised in the church, and that initial grounding in her life of believing in this power greater than herself, I think even after she leaves the church, she can't really abandon some of the thinking that those early years left her with. And so there are moments when she's in her lab where she will talk about things like the holiness of holding a mouse in her hand, or just kind of use this language that you understand that she hasn't completely given up her faith. There's a point where she says something like, both faith and science were for her ways of seeing. Mm -hmm. And I like that idea for thinking about Gifty in this novel. She's a character who is at some point trading one lens for another, but while understanding that both lenses have at some point in her life contributed greatly to how she saw the world. And I think that being in neuroscience is such a good way of bringing those things together because it seems like from, you know, you really describe these lab experiments with mice and you must have delved into the science a lot, but it also seems like there's still so much that's mysterious about the way the brain works. But the brain is the thing that brings the soul and the mind together, for instance, that it's how we interface with the world. And so anyways, it's beyond my scientific understanding, but I I wonder if you could just talk about how you came to kind of understand the way the brain works and it's functioning just in existence? Sure. Well, I should say first that I'm still very much a lay person. Even after writing this book, I don't think I could give you like a 30-minute lecture on optogenetics, though I wish that I could. But one thing that was really interesting to me, just talking to scientists, particularly my friend, was the fact that they really do or she really does, I shouldn't speak for all scientists, but she really does still like create this space for the idea of mystery, for the fact that there are things that she wants to know that she might never get the opportunity to know. And so for her, the research was very much a process of asking as many questions as possible, trying to kind of approach something, again, knowing that she wouldn't quite get there. And I think that that 
really resonated with me, not just from the standpoint of somebody who was interested in these themes, interested in the brain, but also as a writer. I think that the task of trying to get to something that is ineffable is part of what makes me really love this work that I do. And so once I started thinking about those things as perhaps being related, it made this process open up in a way that it hadn't before. Mm -hmm. And I wonder just personally for you, if Gifty's attitude towards the depth and the interest of scientific reason and also the need for something more, for a purpose to life, if that kind of mirrors your own way of looking at just being alive. I don't know if it does. I mean, I, I think that I'm certainly searching for meaning and that part of the reason that I love reading and writing so much is because I think they help me make meaning. But I don't think of myself as a particularly like meticulous, scientific-brained person. Though I like the idea, perhaps, that those two ways of thinking run parallel to one another. Mm -hmm. Or not even scientifically brained per se, but just the need for a greater purpose, a greater context, if that, you know, that kind of dry logic is not enough. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I think I am searching for just something deeper than what we might get on the surface. To back up a little bit, I mean, this is your second novel. Mm -hmm. And so Homegoing was a tremendous success. And I'm wondering if it was, if I can ask this, like if it was daunting to write the second novel, if this had been something you'd been thinking about for a while while you were kind of observing with your friend or what the process of writing a second book was like for you? It was daunting in many ways. I think I had put a lot of pressure on myself. Thankfully, I wasn't getting any pressure from any of the people who work with me, my agent or my editor. Everyone was very generous about how much time I could take to write another book, even if it was forever. Nobody made me feel like I had to come out with something right away. But I think I had spent so many years on homegoing. It took me seven years from inception to publication. And I think when I finished it, I just kind of felt bereft. I felt like, what (laughs) is, what's left? What do I do now? And I've been a writer for most of my life, really. I started writing fiction when I was really young and I had such a intimate daily practice that to spend so many months not really in the throes of a project really kind of threw me. So I think I was daunted by the fact that I wasn't working on something as quickly as I thought I would have been working on something. But, you know, I think one thing that really helped was just kind of freeing myself up to try something completely different, to think about something completely different so that I didn't have to be beholden to any of the rules that I may have set for myself with homegoing, to any of the goals that I set for myself with homegoing. I just got to feel a little bit more playful with this book. And that was really satisfying ultimately. I think the process of writing the first draft of this was really a pleasure for me. One thing that I was thinking about as I was reading the second book is that obviously Homegoing is in many ways like a classic diaspora novel. And this is also a diaspora novel, but it affects itself in a different register. 
So I wanted to ask a little bit about how you think, because just for listeners, it's Gifty goes back to Ghana during a period of the book. There's a kind of division between Gifty's mother, who stays in the U.S. and Alabama, and then the father, the Chinchin man, who goes back to Ghana and stays there. Can you talk about how diaspora, that kind of difference, functions in this novel? Because it seems to me quite distinct from Homegoing. Yeah, you're right. I think it is distinct from Homegoing, but still very much present. You know, Homegoing was diaspora at the macro level, pulled back. You get to see the full picture of the African diaspora or a fuller picture of the African diaspora. But Transcendent Kingdom, the diaspora is more intimate, more micro. Gifty is the child of Ghanaian immigrants, but she ends up in Alabama. And even more specifically than that, she ends up in the white part of Alabama, the white part of Huntsville, Alabama. And she attends school and church with mostly white people. And so she's a character who I think feels isolation within the isolation. And because she's never been to Ghana, she doesn't really have this framework for thinking of herself as Ghanaian. There's a point where she says something like, I felt about as Ghanaian as apple pie. Yes, I love Uh, that line. (laughs) It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but she had never been to Ghana before. And then when she does go, it is a trip that she takes after this great trauma has occurred. She goes because her mother isn't capable of taking care of her at that point in her life and needs some extra help and so sends her to stay with her aunt. And so her relationship to Ghana, I think, is a fraught one, as is her relationship to her Blackness in America. And so I think it's examining diaspora, but it's doing it through the lens of thinking about race and ethnicity as these two distinct things, both of which can sometimes be obscured for the person who finds herself isolated from the communities that she would normally be engaged with. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Yaa Jesse about her new novel, Transcendent Kingdom. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Kelly Jo Ford on the line with us today. Kelly's new novel is called Crooked Hallelujah, and she is joining us for a book recommendation. Kelly, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend David Heska Wombly Wyden's book that is coming out today, August 25th. It's called Winter Counts. Okay, tell me more about the book. Sure. It, it takes place on the Rosebud Reservation, and it's kind of a literary crime book, and it's, it's great. Um, and it's getting all kinds of great attention, much deserved. It's about a guy named Virgil Wounded Horse, and he's kind of a local enforcer who takes justice, more than the law, justice into his own hands for people on the reservation for whom I guess the law is failing. And so it's, it's him and, you know, he's trying to find out where drugs are coming from on the reservation, but it's, it's just really great. And it's really well done. Even on the sentence level, it's, it's a good book. How did you come to it? How did you discover it? Um, it's been, um, in a couple of 
articles as early as, you know, maybe March or something. And we have mutual friends, David and I do. Is this a, is this a mystery? Is this, is this kind of a, a literary genre? I, yeah, it's definitely a literary Thriller? genre. And, okay. you know, that's not always like what I'm usually reading. But um, when I grab a book like that, that is feels well done to me, then I just gobble them up and I love them. Yeah, and, it sounds know, really good. I grew up reading genre books, so I think it speaks right to my heart. Oh, interesting. Okay, will you tell us the title again and the author? Sure. It's called Winter Counts, and it's by David Heska Wombly Wyden. Thank you so much, Kelly. We've been talking to Kelly Jo Ford. Her new novel is called Crooked Hallelujah. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Yaa Jesse, author of Transcendent Kingdom. Something else that, um, that I think is so fascinating in the book is talking about the different attitudes towards mental illness in different countries and even sometimes the different experiences of mental illness in, in different places. And you cite a 2015 study that's real that mm-hmm. talks about um, the way that actually schizophrenics experience their illness in both in India, Ghana, and in America, and that it was much gentler in um, the voices that the, the schizophrenics heard were, were gentler in both India and Ghana and America. They were harsh and terrible. And Gifty's mother is a depressive, but I don't, I don't know how much she completely believes in mental illness or in having a mental illness, maybe partly because of where she's from. First, maybe just you could address what, what you thought about that study, why you wanted to include it, and, and then just the complications of, of illnesses really being, or mental illness specifically, is, is being somewhere that depends so much on the context of where it's experienced. Yeah, um, that study really stuck with me when I, when I first read it, and I read it years ago probably when it came out um, and just kind of filed it away because they found it so interesting to think about. For me, what it really highlighted was the fact that health and culture are so inextricable. They play off of one another and they inform each other. Um, So the fact that the schizophrenics in Ghana and India could think about the voices that they heard as members of their family, could think about them as the voice of God and felt loved by or protected by those voices, I think, spoke to their cultures. Whereas the American um, schizophrenics described their voices as violent and harsh um, bombardment. And I found that really striking. There's a point where Gifty is telling us that her mother told her that she doesn't believe in mental illness. And I think that she doesn't, she's not saying that mental illness doesn't exist. But I think what she's speaking to is the fact that this idea that there's like much ado over the over the mental illness and the way that we treat it um, here, as opposed to um, as opposed to the way that she would deal with it in Ghana, which is to be surrounded by her church, to be prayed for. I think in that way, her belief has more to do with her culture than like speaking about health in general. And I I wonder when you were growing up, were there things like that, uh, that you experienced with your own parents, just in terms of that the the cultural understandings of them were so different that... um, it's almost like they, they couldn't recognize what you were experiencing because it, it had just been so different in Ghana. 
Sure. Um, I'm, and there were a million things like that, I'm sure, um, small and and large. The, the thing that comes immediately to mind not was not um, mental illness per se. I think one way that I noticed a kind of cultural difference between how I saw the world and how my parents saw the world was in the way that they talked to us about racism or didn't talk to us about racism. And I think for them, there was this feeling of of being kind of set apart from American racism because of the fact that they had grown up in a place where everyone looked like them, where they never had to really think about race. For them, I think ethnicity, and, and my parents are from two different ethnic groups, and their kind of intermarriage was a bit of a scandal to their families. And so I think they think about the kind of tribalisms that we see here in very different terms than me. And being here, and especially when I was younger, having to kind of navigate the fact that when I left my house, people didn't necessarily see me as a Ghanaian anymore. That feeling of, of trying to navigate that, I think, was one way in which the, the difference um, really, really showed up. I must say, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of in-betweenness in the book, right? So we've talked about some of the in-betweenness and in identity, the in-betweenness of kind of addiction, recovery, depression. One thing that struck me, and it, it's a little bit of like kind of a, a buried thread in the novel, is a kind of in-betweenness regarding sexuality. Gifty has, on the one hand, her relationship to sexuality and to her body, I think, which I would also love to hear you talk about, is a journey that she has to go through alongside her faith, right? So she's Mm -hmm. learning, I think, in many ways to kind of claim the body that is a site, not only just not of shame, but instead pleasure, but also as a kind of site for her, right? That it is Gifty's body. It's not a body that's being surveilled necessarily by a god, et cetera, et cetera. Or certainly by a community, right? By the kind of sense of the ch- how the church treats the, uh, I believe it's the pastor's daughter who has a child out right. of wedlock or when she's younger. But she also kind of deals, and I, I love the kind of matter of fact way that you deal with what I, I believe is something of a, of a sexual, if not just romantic relationship with a woman that she's an undergrad with. But then also these kind of men with whom she has sexual encounters that are a little vague, but kind of we get the sense that she's not totally comfortable, at least divulging to the reader what that is. So can you talk a little bit just about how Gifty navigates sexuality as another kind of liminal space? Sure. I thought a lot about how to portray Gifty's sexuality um, how she herself would be experiencing her sexuality. And for me, it really came down to those early teachings of her church that made her body and the workings of sexuality kind of a mystery to her. Um, she talks about how when she was in school, the, the school brought somebody from the church to talk to them about abstinence and how all of the language around their physical bodies was really vague and metaphorical. So they never heard the words penis or vagina. They never Mm. heard where anything went, what anything did. They were just using words like your special gift, your secret box, your just things that didn't actually pertain to 
what the physicality of the sexual act was. And so I think for her, there's like a lot of secrecy and, as you mentioned, shame around her body and around sex and around um, sexual relationships. Um, So when she comes to points in her life where she has to or wants to be intimate with somebody, I think that those early walls kind of pop up really quickly. Um, And she has trouble both defining those moments for herself, but also allowing herself to experience those moments physically. Um, She's in her head so much, even throughout the sexual encounters. There's a, a point where she's talking about having sex with this guy and he's saying something like you're uh, he's saying something like you're a bad girl and in her head she thinks no i'm not and there's this this dissonance i think for her because she can't really let herself feel these things in an embodied way and i think that has a lot to do with the way that sexual desire sexual sexual prowess sexual responsibility um, any of those things the way that those things were were taught to her Well, because in that moment, right, she's navigating both, like, the bedroom erotics of being, like, you're a bad girl, which is the way that he's using it, right? Right. And the way that I think she's interpolating it, which is, like, you're a bad girl, like, this is a case of sin, right? That, like, from from a faith perspective, you're being a bad girl. And so even as he's inviting her to delight in that kind of pleasure, right, she's running up against the different ways that pleasure reads to her. Exactly. Because she spent so many years um, trying to be good um, and the goodness of, of the church, the goodness as like piety. So even being confronted with that idea that badness in this particular case could be a good thing is mm-hmm. something that she can't, she can't wrap her head around. You know, it, it also occurs to me that in the book, the way that addiction is portrayed it's, you know, that, that often we think of addiction in really moralistic terms, like someone is bad, someone is weak for being able, you know, for not being able to stop doing drugs or for, for whatever. Um, but that because there's this kind of parallel of uh, Gifty doing these experiments on mice where she gives them insure um, and they, they take the insure and they get an electric shock and some mice immediately stop taking the insure. Others, you know, give it a couple more times and they eventually stop. And then other people, other mice, sorry, just, just keep going. And, and they kind of, the pleasure of the insure is, is good enough that they're, they're willing to take the risk. I'm sure that must be based on a real experiment. And I, I found that really interesting. And at the same time, it's, it's the scientists have no explanation for, for why that is. I do think it, that the inexplicable nature of addiction, that we really don't know why some people are still willing to take the pain along with the, the pleasure and which, whichever diminishing um, is really illustrated well in the book. And I, I guess I'm, I'm just wondering where that you know, you say you set out to write a book about um, someone dealing with both family members that had depression and addiction. And I'm wondering where your interest in that comes from. And considering that it's it's such a, especially with op- opioids, which is what Gifty's brother becomes addicted to, it's such a huge problem in America at the moment. But um, why did you want to write about that? Yeah, that the research that you mentioned um, is real research. That was my my friend's uh, thesis project, where she created this behavioral testing chamber 
Um, and she would have mice press a lever. And sometimes when they pressed it, they got insure. And sometimes when they pressed it, they got a mild foot shock. And it was randomized so she could see which of the mice continued um, to press the lever um, despite despite the risk. I thought, again, that that research was so fascinating. And I wondered um, how it might relate to the human experience of addiction. And there's a point in this novel where Gifty says something like the brain could could tell her things like where and sometimes even how, but it couldn't tell her why. And she's trying, I think, in, through other ways, through other means to figure out the why. And the why for her has to do with the fact that her, her, brother, her own brother succumbed um, to, his, to his addiction. Um, but I think the reason I was interested in an opioid specifically was, as you say, I was, it was in the news so much. It's obviously been kind of put on the back burner. The opioid epidemic has uh, been put on the back burner as we think about this pandemic. Um, but I was reading so many really fascinating pieces around opioid addiction. The New York Times had this piece, I think that was called How Opioids Hijack the Brain that came out a couple years ago that was really interesting. But one thing that I noticed was that the the writing around uh, the opioid crisis had really shifted to into talking about the kind of health implications, talking about addiction as a health crisis and not a criminal one, which felt to me to be directly correlated to the fact that the opioid epidemic that we were experiencing, are experiencing, um, was one that was taking place in namely white, rural, and suburban communities, as opposed to the long-existing heroin epidemic that was largely Black and urban. And I felt like this this shift had to do with race. And I felt like that was an aspect of the conversation that wasn't being talked about very much. So I think one of the reasons I wanted to write about addiction in this way was because it presented me with the opportunity to talk about Black people who are suffering from addiction um, and to share their experiences in the same kind of nuanced, um, humanizing, responsible, conscientious way that a lot of these pieces were talking about white opioid use disorder Mm -hmm. sufferers. Yeah, because Gifty's brother, Nana, he becomes uh, addicted to opioids, you know, just like like most people because they were prescribed to him. And in, in no other nefarious way, he's a teenager who plays basketball. So, yeah, I guess that was, I hadn't noticed quite the way you set that up, but that, that makes a lot of sense what you say. I wondered if that's, it's never something, maybe this is too personal, but it has it has addiction touched your life in any way? No, opioid addiction has not touched my life in any way. Or, or any kind, I mean, in your, in your family or friends? Or have you um, dealt with it at all? No. You know, in a, in a somewhat related way, you know, thinking about what you were saying in terms of um, showing how addiction kind of impacts people in the Black community and trying to give the full humanity of that experience does remind me in many ways of, I think, the quite astute and subtle ways that you pull in how structural racism, right, or institutional racism shapes the experiences of your characters. Because as you were talking about that, I'm remembering the several moments, I think, 
in the in the novel where Gifty overhears either I think the first is like two church ladies gossiping. There's another event that happens, I think, in another context, or perhaps she's just remembering this first one, where they say, oh, well, you know, people like that, meaning Black people, like, are basically given to drug addiction or, or something like that. And then there's these, there's similar other moments. Like, I was thinking about, I've been thinking about a lot about Nana's character and how there's a moment when a classmate, I believe, says to Gifty, like, well, your brother, and the classmate is a drug dealer also, I believe, says like, your brother's best shot, basically, I'm paraphrasing, is to be a basketball player. And what he's kind of talking about is like, on on the one hand, he's reflecting racist tropes, but also in some ways reflecting a racist reality where it's like, look, books aren't gonna help your brother like basketball is. So part of me also wonders if like, not just getting addicted to the pills, which as Kate is saying, is a fundamental part of how many people become addicted to these powerful opioids, but that also seeming to have taken away from him in his injury, the only kind of celebration that that culture or society where he was growing up in Alabama seemed to offer a young black man like him was suddenly taken away was also part of what made him fall into addiction. So what I'm trying to to get at is this subtlety of how racism encounters narratives of addiction and suffering in the novel. Yeah, well, I think part of it um, has to do with kind of thinking through the questions of kind of goodness and respectability politics, Mm. um, all of those kinds of things that Black people hear often about how to get ahead in this country, which always reveal themselves to be a lie, ultimately. Yeah. Um, there's that moment where, where Gifty says something like, nothing but blazing brilliance would be enough. But even that isn't enough to kind of keep her sheltered from the racist experiences that she has. So for most of her adult life, I think Gifty is in this process of dismantling these early messages around goodness, around Black respectability politics, this messaging that created, I think, for her, a really kind of entrenched, internalized racism. She's got to kind of learn how to accept or understand the fact that her goodness will not save her and that no one's goodness can save them. And I think that Nana is one of the ways that she's learning that lesson. I think it's interesting that that Gifty in some ways is like a, you know, that that in a kind of more generic story of, of immigration, that, that she is like the ultimate success. She's getting her PhD. She's a scientist. You know, she's she's basically done everything that she could uh, to advance this idea that, you know, just you work hard enough and um, and that's how you achieve the American dream. But I, I find it interesting the way you set it up in the book that it's it's not that her parents pressured her to do it per se. They weren't even paying attention enough really to force her to, to work hard, um, that she's basically achieved something for herself because it interests her. And I wondered if it was also intentional, you know, there's so few women in science, there's so few women of color in science, even more, um, 
you know, how, how you saw her success in the book and if it, if it was some form of still this idea of the possibility of, of America. Yeah, I think that even though she wasn't getting that messaging from home, she was certainly getting it from from other aspects of her life. And there is the way in which like getting gold stars outside, like in the classroom or just anytime she like did something well and got reinforced for like being good at something, it kind of reinforced this idea again, that her that her goodness was going to take her somewhere. And it does um, in a lot of ways, like you, you can't mistake that. But I think she knows that the American dream um, isn't all that it's cracked up to be, merely because in her own household, her father ended up leaving because America was so miserable for him. You know, he came and it was awful and he missed his home and he missed his food and he missed his culture and he decided to go back. And so I think that already kind of complicates this narrative that if you just work as hard as possible, you can achieve anything that you want. She already has seen that to be a lie in her own household, um, not just with her father, but also I think with, with a mother who works nonstop and is always kind of paddling upstream um, and, and not kind of seeing any real gains from that. And so I think she's a person who can see all sides of the American dream. What are you working on now? I'm not really working on anything now. Um, Can I ask you, are you finding it difficult to write during this time? Yeah, I have been finding it difficult to write during this time, but I also pretty early on in the pandemic um, stopped trying. Uh, So it's uh, it's not really i'm not sure which which came first the difficulty mm. writing or the the pandemic but i think that were i in the middle of a project right now that i would still find it pretty difficult to write but i'm i'm giving myself a little break and maybe that's a kind of note that all of our listeners can take that from <laughs> yeah jesse it is okay to give yourself a little bit of a break in the midst of <laughs> all of this madness. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking with us. We've really appreciated it. We've been speaking with Yah Jesse, author most recently of Transcendent Kingdom. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. We've been speaking with Yah Jesse, author of Transcendent Kingdom. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.